So let's talk about what it means to get an education and to be molded. We're in the middle of a series right now where we're talking about the four pillars of Daylight Church, which you see on the screen there, service, study, worship, and rest. And so you might wonder what these four kind of semi-crooked columns up here are. That's, that's, what they, that's what they stand for, service, study, worship, and rest. And we have kind of tailor-made what we do around what we believe. And we believe in service, study, worship, rest, and therefore we've done service projects. And we do community groups, small groups, where we get together and study and grow together. Uh, worship services, and then rest is not a rest is rest is the non thing. We we think people at churches oftentimes are overworked, and and volunteers obviously are underpaid, and so we try to make it make it clear and make it make it sure that people get chances to rest, and we don't overload them with a calendar. But today we're talking about the second part of study. The end of last year, we talked about service, study, worship, rest, and and these these four ideas that we're talking about on the screen here. But now we're talking about the uber super secret level between service and finding purpose and so forth. And, and so when we talk about study, we're talking about the seeking of truth. And when, when we talk about truth at Daylight Church, what we're talking about is that which corresponds to reality. So we're trying to figure out what is actual, what is real. And, and so what we talk about at Daylight Church is that no question is off the table. We, we find that there's a lot of places around the world where you're not allowed to ask the difficult questions of faith. And we don't want to be that church at all. We want to be a church where where you can ask what you want, when you want. And we, we hope that by asking the difficult questions, where no question is off the table, that you will eventually arrive at knowledge. So we, we believe when you serve, you find purpose. When you study, you find knowledge. When you worship, you arrive at surrender. And when you rest, you arrive at peace. And so today we're talking about the second part of study, of seeking that which is real, that which is true. We, everybody has so many ideas, and, and I, think, I think humility demands that we realize that we're not right about all of our ideas. That's... That's kind of the foundation of, of what it means to be humble. And when you stand before a God of all ideas, it becomes apparent really quickly that you have a lot to learn. And so we want to be learners at Daylight Church. And so what we're talking about today is this step between seeking truth and arriving at knowledge. And there's this place in the middle where, that, that is, is highly practical. You, you apply the truth. And I've I don't know if you've ever done this, but I ha I, a couple times this week, uh, twice this week, I've had these half-awake, half-asleep waking dreams when I was getting up in the morning, and this word has been in my head, and it's a, it's a nonsensical word that I think my brain made up. But in these dreams, man, it was real. Like, I was preaching this word, and it was, make, it was changing people's lives, and it's the dumbest word ever, but it's helplification. And you probably assume helplification should be spelled differently, and when you make up your own words, you can spell them however the heck you want to. But this is how I'm spelling this one today. is helplification. And helplification in these dreams that I was having is a combination of help and application and amplification. And boy, when I was preaching in my dreams, it really made sense. And right now, you guys' gazes are indicating that my dream was way off. But help, application, amplification is what we're going to talk about today is the idea that knowledge is meant to be applied. Like you saw in the video clip, knowledge is not just meant to fill your head with facts. Knowledge is meant to mold your character. Knowledge is meant to mold who you are. And so I hope as a church that when we study, when we go to our small groups, when we come and listen to a sermon, when we open up the Bible, we're not just reading and studying because that's what good Christians do. We're doing it so that it will morph us and change us. The Bible talks about being renewed by the transforming of your mind, that when your mind changes and when you see things differently, it changes who you are at a base level. And so what we're talking about here in this, in this middle ground of helplification is, is comparable to three little illustrations I have here. So a baseball player. Now, if a baseball player wants to be a baseball player, can they read enough books to become a baseball player? 
I mean, can they, what, what if they read everything there ever was written about baseball? And they, I mean, they study all the stats. They know every player that ever played, every coach that ever coached, every ref that ever ref, they know, every umpire, everything. I mean, they know everything about it. There's still something missing, right? They, what's that? They're just a fan, right. It, it requires taking the knowledge that you've learned, learning the rules of the game, learning how it's played. There's a study involved, but you've got to get the ball in your mitt. You've you got, you got to get out there and develop muscle memory. You've got to throw a ball from third to first a thousand times before it becomes second nature where you don't even think about it anymore. In fact, in playing the game, sometimes thinking gets in the way. A good coach will say, stop thinking and, and do what you know to do. And so when we talk about knowledge and we talk about study, we're not just talking about filling our head full of facts. Because filling our head full of facts where Christianity is concerned falls very, very much short of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. There's something experiential about following Jesus. It means you do something. And, and I just want to be careful that, that when we talk about study, people don't get bound up in, okay, well, I'm going to study the Bible, study the Bible, study this, study that, listen to podcasts and assume that that is like the, the path for their life. There's, there's, much, there's something more powerful and something deeper to look for than just the path of study. It's the, it's the application of what you learn. If you study Hong Kong, I mean, you read all, every book out there, you watch every show about Hong Kong. Do you know Hong Kong until you've lived in Hong Kong? I mean, the person that's been on the streets and smelled the food and talked to the people, right, they, they know Hong Kong. Who wants a surgeon who has read but never done surgery? Nobody wants this surgeon. There's a, I think there's a Geico commercial now where the doctor comes in and says, hey, are you nervous to the patient? The patient goes, yeah, I'm nervous. And the doctor says, yeah, me too, and then walks out. And that's not the doctor. You don't want the doctor that has studied and studied and studied and had filled his brain full of surgery. You want the doctor who has actually gotten in there and used a scalpel before. And as Christians, we, we, we have to guard ourselves against the uh, constant influx of information and assuming that that is what Christianity is supposed to look like. It's not. You fill yourself with information that morphs you and transforms you and changes you. Jesus told this parable. He said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, that's the key part that we're looking for right here. It's not just the hearing of the words. It's not just listening and filling your head full of information, but it's the one who puts them into practice. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house yet it did not fall. And then, he, then he, he contrasts that in the continuation of this parable by the one who does, who, who, who builds it and doesn't put it into practice. And he says, that person is like a person who builds their house on the sand. And when the winds blow and the, 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 the waves rose, it says that house was smashed. And we want to be the kind of person he's describing here where we hear the message, we listen, we study, we do our due diligence, but then it shapes and changes the way we live our everyday lives. It, it affects us. Jesus' brother James, who we'll talk about a lot later this year, describes a man who, who hears, hears the message but doesn't do it. And he compares that person to a person who looks in a mirror and forgetting what they saw, walks away. And I, I, if, if you've ever seen bodybuilding, like, like uh, Pumping Iron with Arnold Schwarzenegger or any of the bodybuilding documentaries, you find out that a lot of what they do is they flex in front of a mirror and they examine their body and the curvature of their body. And they're, what they're looking for is, you know, this, this, this muscle is slightly larger than this muscle, which means I need to work this part of my body a little bit harder. Or my legs are a little bit out of proportion compared to my upper body. I need to work my legs better. And so they're examining themselves in the mirror to see what, where the adjustment needs to be made. But, it's, but, but the person who looks in the mirror and walks away forgetting what they've seen wasted their time looking in the mirror. 
It's the bodybuilder who looks in the mirror and says, okay, this muscle is out of line with that one. I'm going to work this one, and then goes and hits the gym. And I think that's kind of what James is saying. When you look in the mirror and you've got food on your face, if you walk away and forget you have food on your face, the mirror did you no good. It's the, per the person who uses the mirror appropriately is the one who looks at it to see what needs to change and makes changes. And, and James, Jesus' brother, compares that to how we study. In 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, this is the chapter that's read at every wedding, every Christian wedding, everywhere. And it talks about if I, have, if, I have, if I understand all mysteries, it says that. It says if I know every mystery and I have all knowledge, I know everything, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. It says knowledge doesn't do, do jack for you until it transforms you, until it changes not just the way you think, but the, the, the way you think starts to change the way that you act. I want to introduce you to two Greek words today, gnosis and kenosis. And it's nice that they kind of sound similar. It's easy to remember. Gnosis, say that with me out loud. Gnosis and kenosis. Go. Gnosis and kenosis. Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. So when you read in Romans eleven thirty three, where it talks about how abundant the depth of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God is, that's the gnosis of God. It's, it's, it's the all the things that he gets, all the things that he understands. And this, this passage kind of has a double meaning. There's a lot of passages in Scripture like this. It says, it says the depth of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. So it's saying his depth, his riches, his wisdom, his knowledge is so great. But it's also saying the depth of the riches of knowing, the wisdom of knowing, and the, and, and the knowledge of God, us having knowledge of God, that this is a great, deep amazing thing. And that's what this gnosis is. It's the knowledge. It's, it's the getting of something. But then what we find in scripture is this other word of kenosis. And we find that the gnosis of God, knowing God, turns into what the Greeks called kenosis. And that appears here in Philippians 2, which is the most famous kenotic passage in the Bible. It says, have this mind among yourselves. So this is, this is how you ought to think, is what the writer is saying here. He says, it's yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So it says Jesus was God. Jesus looked like God, felt like God, talked like God, had all the power of God, and yet what did he do? He didn't consider that something to be held onto, something to be grasped, it says. But instead he let it go. And it says he, he gave himself up and he emptied himself. And that's that word kenosis. That's where that Greek word kenosis comes in. Is, and this is echinosis, which is a derivative of kenosis. But it says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And so what we find throughout Scripture is this idea that we fill ourselves with the knowledge of God. And the knowledge of God is abundant and vast and rich and amazing and incredible. And when we fill ourselves with the knowledge of God, what we're filling ourselves with is this new mentality that says, I'm not supposed to grasp for power. I'm not supposed to grasp for self. I'm not supposed to elevate myself and make myself look good in front of everybody. But instead, I'm supposed to make myself a servant. That's the kenosis. So the gnosis, the knowledge, is always followed in Scripture. The knowledge of the gospel is this, is that that knowledge fills you and that gnosis turns into kenosis, which is an emptying of yourself. That's the transformation. That's the ability to throw from third to first a thousand times is when you read and study and you learn what Christianity is all about, what you find yourself doing over and over and over is emptying yourself, laying yourself down, letting yourself go. That's, where, that's the end of the study 
of the gospel. In recent months, we've talked quite a bit about Jesus and who Jesus was and that, that Jesus wasn't what everybody expected him to be. People were expecting Jesus to show up to be this powerful Messiah that overthrew the Roman government and, and led an army in to kill off all their enemies and to prove once and for all that Jehovah God was the right God and that all these other gods were pagan, terrible gods. That's not who Jesus showed up to be at all. He showed up to be a totally different kind of Messiah. And we've, we've, we've used this list a few times in here, and I think it's so important that it's worth revisiting. But this is who he turned out to be. It wasn't, it wasn't the God that grasped power. It wasn't the God who fought for rights. It wasn't the God who fought at that time anything material. He was fighting in an immaterial spiritual realm. And this is the stuff he did. He healed the sick. He gave value to the valueless. He washed people's nasty feet. He, he, he multiplied, multiplied food and wine. He calmed storms. He attacked the theocracy, and he held off in, on vengeance. He could, have, he could have called down columns of fire at any time, but he didn't, and he, did, he let go of power. And this was the Messiah they got. It wasn't the Messiah they wanted. And they were in dire straits at the time. I mean, they were literally held captive. They were enslaved by a, a larger force of people that they wanted him to conquer, and that's not what he did. He came in and kenosis. He came in and laid himself down and died for a spiritual awakening, for something powerful to happen inside the lives of individuals. And so when we talk about helpification, this is, this is kind of the, the, the foundation of, of the, the concept here, is that the gospel of Jesus is a gospel of help. It's a gospel where you lay down your life for someone else. In the, in the earlier passage where it said, it said you, can have all, you can understand all mysteries. Every mystery could be yours. All knowledge could be yours. It says, but if you don't have love, which if I remember correctly, and that is the Greek agape, agape, which is self-sacrificing, lay down your life love, you have nothing. You've acquired nothing to get all the knowledge in the world. To be the, you might be able to flip to the book of James faster than anybody in your Bible study, and it doesn't make you anything. You might, you might be able to quote verse after verse after verse, and it doesn't do anything for you if you don't have this kenosis, if you don't have this laying down of your life. And I think it's such an important message that the Western church learns that, this is, that the, being the best at Bible study is not where it's at, which is not at all to, to, to depreciate the value of Scripture. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a high Scripture guy. But it is to say that Scripture without action, Scripture without transformation, there's something not only missing, but something kind of ugly about it is that it's intended to change you. Where Christianity is concerned, study without practice is, is to remain unlearned. It means you haven't learned the lesson. So to, to try to play baseball without practicing means you're not a baseball player. This is not to say who is and who isn't a Christian. What I am saying is if you've missed the part of the application, so there's the application of help and helplification. It's, it's that what you learn and study is meant to be acted Upon it, it means it's supposed to make a change in your life. And so I want to just very quickly, very briefly, run through four little tips I have that I think will help in the, the process of applying what you study. Now, some people, you don't study, and that's an issue. That's, that's a foundational part of this whole concept is that you have to start with study. Is that you, when, we, when we talk about truth being that which corresponds to reality, that you really want to know that you really care enough to put in some legwork and actually do some study to find out why you believe what you believe and why you should believe it and who believes it and, and what the facts are and so forth. And studying philosophy and theology and so forth 
Uh, not everybody is going to be a scholar, but everybody should be concerned with finding the truth. We'll talk about uh, the mess people get in maybe as we go on. But when we talk about helpification, when we talk about the application of truth, when you're in a Bible study, when you hear a sermon, when you have a conversation with your friends, when God touches you in some way, uh, I've heard wild stories in this room about things that God said to people. One of the best responses you can have is to ask this question, which is just very simple. One of the best responses is to say, how do I respond? It means, it means the knowledge doesn't just stop at the knowledge. You don't just hear something and say, well, that was good, or that was interesting, or that was fascinating, or I didn't like that at all. It means you take the next step of what does that mean for my life? How does that apply to my life? And I'll say this. I, I, I hope I give the impression that I, I, I feel this way as a pastor. Your response to a teaching doesn't have to be my response to a teaching. You don't have to, always, you don't have to buy hook, line, and sinker everything I say from up here behind the pulpit just because I'm the guy with the pulpit. But instead, you're a person who studies on your own, a person who comes to your own conclusions. But here's what I believe. I believe you've already won by asking the question. Now, it may not, be, it may not even be the right response always. You, you will not always get the response right. But if you have a heart that says, God, what, how do you want me to respond? My life is yours. Teach me. You've already won even when you miss something. It's more about the idea that I want what you want than it is that you arrive at the correct thing all the time. But it means that when you listen, when you study, when you read, when you hear, that you have a heart that says, what does this mean for me and how does it transform me? So it starts with kind of an attitude. I want to encourage you to let God work on one or two things at a time. Uh, the, the conflux of knowledge from this vast God that, has, that owns and knows everything, if, if he poured out everything on us, all at once, it would absolutely overwhelm us. And he has a tendency to just pick one thing and kind of pick on it for a while. I've seen, I've seen that in my own life, is that, that there will be things that he wants to change in you. You're looking in the mirror, you're studying, and you're seeing this one muscle that's a little bit out of alignment with the muscle on the other side, so you're not symmetrical. Something's off. And God's going to keep hammering that little thing, whatever it is. And so when you, when you, you, when you read the scriptures and it says to love your enemies and do good to those that hate you, that might be something that you just can't do. Like you hate someone, and it's because of what they did to you. Maybe, maybe your hatred feels justified. But you know what Jesus is going to do? He's going to come in and start touching that thing over and over. He's going to say, let's fix that. Let's heal that. Let's work on that. And let him do it. And don't bypass it, because here's what's going to happen. You're going to try to go work on something else, and he's going to say, no, 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 hold on. Let's move back to this thing that you haven't let me in on. And he's going to try to work on it. And, there, and there's a thousand things. It could be in the area of generosity. It can be in the area of gossip. There's, there's a passage, I think it's also in James, where he says, out of the same mouth come blessings and cursings. My brothers, this should not be. Well, if you're in the habit of cursing people vocally, that might be something that Jesus wants to get in and say, let's, let's work on this. doesn't mean he hates you. It means you're a son or a daughter. It means he, he loves you. He adores you. But let him, one at a time, one thing at a time, transform your life one step at a time, and what happens is 20 years later, you look back and you're like, wow, I, can't, I, I don't even know who I was back then, which is a good thing. And again, I can't emphasize it enough. It's not about God wanting to beat anything out of you. It's about God wanting to shape you into something amazing. My friend David Rudolph has turned me on to this. Dave, I saw you come in earlier. You're back there, right? Hi, Dave. Dave has turned me on to this, this thing in, in town where uh, you go and you, I haven't done it yet. I have a, a certificate to go do it. 
and I've tried to make an appointment and failed thus far. But basically, they stick you in this cocoon, and some of you are terrified already because you're claustrophobic, but it's, it's, it's like a tanning bed, only it's, it's half filled with water. But the water is like super dense salt water, and so you have this ability to lay on top of it, and the viscosity of the water, has somebody, Kate, have you done this? Has anybody else done it? Yeah, Joseph's done it. So my understanding is, so norm, you know, if you go out to the lake, you kind of have to work to stay afloat. My understanding is this water you can just kick back on, and it, it kind of sucks all the sensory perception out of you is, is, is what I hear. And so you're, you're laying in this dark chamber, floating and kind of feeling nothing. And a, a lot, if you lay in your bed, it's not the same because you feel the bed pressing up against you. You feel your back pressing, pressing down on, on the bed. It's, it, my, from what I hear from people, it's extremely great at stress relief. It's, it's because you just... Oh, you just breathe, you just float, you don't have to fight, you don't have to push and strive and struggle to, to, try to, to try to relax. You're not forcing yourself to relax. It's almost like relaxation has taken you. And, and I, when, when it talks about the application of knowledge, I wanna, I, I'm, I've talked about, you know, you want to learn something, you want to let it transform your life and so forth. There needs to be this degree of flotation that occurs, meaning you're not in charge of this gig. You, you can't strive hard enough to learn well enough to practice kenosis. It's, it's kind of out of your grasp. What you really have to do, and this is, this is one of the interesting things about it, is the more you study, the more you realize your study doesn't accomplish what you want your study to accomplish. It's, it's, it's a giving yourself. So kenosis means letting go. And that's what, this, what I mean by the flotation thing is let God do this thing in you. You say, well, I've been cursing people with my mouth, or I've been bitter against this person, or I've had a lack of generosity, or I've been angry, or a gossip, or, or whatever all the, the sin things are that people pick on. Those aren't the issues. The issue is kind of who's in charge here. And when it comes to the knowledge of God, it's, it's, it's a just letting go. And I don't know how to tell you how to do that. I don't know how to do it myself exactly. I just know that it's part of the process, and it's, part, it's, it's like that throwing that ball from third base to first base. You've done it over and over and over until something just clicks and something happens. And as you study and as you apply what you learn in Scripture and in teaching and podcasts and books and so forth, as you try to find Jesus, that which corresponds to reality, this flotation thing happens where you start to realize that somebody else is, is in charge here. And, and again, I, I don't know the practical way to tell you to do that except just to say watch for it, ask for it, look for it. This, this flotation where, where you're not striving and working so hard to be something that you're not, but rather something is carrying you along. And that's part of the message of the gospel is that that's what Jesus does. And then finally is I want to encourage you to follow the Eureka. So in cartoons and then on TV shows when a scientist finally locks down that equation or locks down that study in chemistry or, you know, the, the, the thing he's been putting together finally works for the first time, he shouts out, Eureka, right? I don't even know what this means. I have no idea what Eureka means or anything about the word. What's that? There it is. There it is. Right. I knew that. There it is. And so once the scientist yells, there it is, or Eureka, what do they do next? Yes. Exactly. They yell Eureka, and then they don't just say, well, I'm glad I finally got this knowledge, do they? They don't just think, all right, well, this is cool. My lab is going to be fantastic from here on out. No. They've been doing it for something larger. They've been doing it for something bigger. 
And in the gospel of Jesus, that is the reality, is that it doesn't, you don't just become super spiritual in your brain, but instead there's this thing that says, wow, I'm floating, the lights are on, I get it. Now i got to tell somebody. Now the world needs to know. And so the gospel message isn't just get smart. It's become knowledgeable of God, let that transform you, and then let that message go everywhere. That's the message of Jesus. There's a passage in the Corinthians that says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God is making his request, on, uh, making his request through us. And then the author says, so we, we, we beseech you, brethren, meaning we beg you, be reconciled to God. Turn towards God. Now that, now that the lights are on, now that it's, it's happened, it's finally arrived, Eureka, I get it. Now I've become an ambassador of this message. And I didn't have a dream about this, but if you combine help and ambassador, it becomes ambassador. And I didn't think that was near as cool as helpification, which I thought was funny, and you clearly didn't. <laughs> but when you, when you recognize that you are an ambassador of this message, that transformation now just explodes in, in, in brand new proportions. It's just, it's just bigger than ever, the transformation that occurs, because now you recognize that you represent something. You represent something to the entire world. And so when we look at this message of Jesus, we realize that healing the sick, figuratively and literally, is the work of a Christian, that that's something Christians should do. Reaching down to the lowly, figuratively, literally, is something we do. Bringing food and wine is something we do. We, we, we take a party with us where we go. Attacking the theocracy is something that we do. Now, see, we are an ambassador of this message. We're an ambassador of this Jesus, the Messiah that actually, the, the one that corresponds to reality. Not the mean, angry one that wanted to conquer everybody and, and blow away his enemies, but the one that said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. That cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now we're an ambassador of that Jesus. So we've had this knowledge and it's changed us and now we can pitch from third base to first base because it's starting to transform us and change us and it's a message that works through the world. And here's what happens is when you become an ambassador, all these areas that we try to strive, instead of floating, we work, we try to pray better, we try to surrender more, we try to worship harder, we try to do this, we try to do that. Now once you realize you're an ambassador, these things kind of happen naturally. In my conversations, for example, if I'm a person who has been cursing people with my voice, when, I real, when it clicks that now I'm an ambassador, can I do that anymore? I can't. I represent something. I represent something important. And, how I act, and it doesn't mean we become perfect. The, the minute you try to be perfect is the minute you're misrepresenting the gospel. But it does mean that it starts to shape you. It changes your prayer life. When you have that eureka thing that happens that says, Jesus, yes. The whole world should know it changes how you pray. No longer are you working really hard to try to pray, but you're actually concerned about what's going on out there and the lives of the people around you and even the parts of yourself that you need to fix. Prayer comes more naturally. The study of scripture, the study of questions, your own goodness, morality, the decisions you make, whether if, if people, people see you exhibiting terrible behavior versus behavior that represents Jesus, all this stuff starts to click and your motive has changed to Eureka, I want the whole world to know. And it's no longer about, I want to be good, I want to pray better, I want to be smarter, I want to be more knowledgeable of Scripture, I want to be this, I want to be that. It's, that's, that's canceled out. That's not how it works anymore. You've had this floating moment where something else is important. Self-care. Jesus said, love others as, as you love yourself. 
you've got to take care of yourself to represent the message well. You can't, you can't be beat up and destroyed all the time and, and just killing yourself at work or killing yourself with Bible study or doing too much or working too hard or striving too hard. You recognize you have to take care of yourself. Surrender generosity is a huge part of the, of the message going out. And finally, and, and you can go through this whole list. You're, if, let's put it this way. Let's say me and Ernesto, become, we've become friends. But let's say we become very, very good friends. And I find out that he has a fascination with a particular topic, right? Whatever that topic is. If I'm going to be a close personal friend of his, that topic must become important to me. I, I, I don't have to love it myself, but I at least have to be somewhat invested in it in order for us to be the, the best kind of friends that we could be. I, I have to honor his topic. And God is interested in people. That's his number one thing, is that he adores and loves people. And when we try to read the scriptures and we try to study and gain knowledge and memorize this and do that and strive and put on programs and stuff, if we've missed the passion for people, that has been passed on from him, somehow we've missed the big picture. And when we have a passion for people, all this stuff starts to fall in line. It's almost like the passion for people, the love, love being the only thing, is, is the grounding factor in what it means to be Christian, is to love. So, everyone is an ambassador, everyone is a representative, not everyone is a teacher. I feel like this is the message that ought to be plastered across Facebook every single day. Not everyone is a teacher. Should you be a teacher? There's, there's this, James, has, James was Jesus' brother. He has a whole lot to say, but he says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we, will, we who teach will be judged more strictly. And I have a thousand thoughts on what the, what the word judged means there and what we're judged on and so forth. But what it means is that teachers ought to be held to a higher standard, that if you're going to be someone who gets up and and, or gets out there on social media or whatever and instructs everyone else that there should be some credibility behind it, that you should have built something else. And so I, I was meeting with some pastors this week, and, and we, we talked about how, how preaching and teaching is 90% growing, 10% teaching, is that, that you, ought to, you ought to work on establishing who you are and what your internal message is before you work on what goes out. And Let's just face it, we live in a world where everybody claims to be a teacher. Everybody seems to know what's best for everybody else, but hardly anybody does their time. Hardly anybody does their homework. And so here's, here's my thought, is that God wants to raise up teachers. I believe that. Not everyone, but some. And as a parting thought today, I want to talk about what that looks like in daylight. Um, one of my buddies, when we started Daylight Church, he said, if this is HL's church, it's never going to take off. He says, but it's when everybody else owns it that that's when, when things happen. And I've been mulling around that idea and the thought of teaching and so forth. And I'm, I'm going to continue to preach, continue to teach. But I want to start creating opportunities for other people to have a voice in here. And it doesn't even have to be my voice. And it doesn't even have to be stuff that I agree with. I, uh, we can talk about that later. But I want to start opening up windows for some of you guys to share the platform occasionally, uh, maybe once a month, something like that. And I'm going to ask, if, if you're interested, if you feel like God might be calling you to be a teacher... Now, again, there's, there's a credibility that needs to be established underneath that. And so look at yourself first. But if you feel like God is calling you to share a testimony or a story or a devotional, we're going to start making five-minute windows. And, and it could grow into something else, but for right now, this is kind of a big deal. Five-minute windows for people to get up and share what God is doing, what God is teaching them, or what they want to teach others. 
and I will mentor you through that. So we will get ahead of, uh, we will come together ahead of time and talk about what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. It will come with the ca caveat that if you say something absolutely boneheaded, I reserve the right to rebut it. And so it's, it's not going to just be a free-for-all where anybody can get up here and say anything they want. Um, but it is the kind of thing where we want people that God is raising up to share this message, to amplify the message, to get the message out, that we want to honor your gifts and your giftings and honor what God is doing in you. And so if you would have any desire to get up and preach for five minutes, to share your story for five minutes, to somehow publicly have a platform to share what God is doing in you and share this message, I'm totally open to that. Um, there's, there's obvious, obviously, there's a ton of logistical concerns about something like this. But if you're interested in that, either see me personally or send me a, a text or a note on info at daylightchurch.com.